Hello, world. Welcome to the Section 6 Climate Podcast. My name is Gabriel Hollingsworth, and today I'm joined by Justin O'Toole and David Hahn, two newly appointed climate experts here to discuss the issues of climate change with us. We hope you enjoy. Gentlemen, we don't have much time, so let's get right into it. My first question is broad, but I just want to get us rolling. What would you cite as some of the major causes of climate change? Well, the scientific community splits the idea of climate change into two different types, natural climate change and anthropogenic or human-caused climate change. Though we like to focus our discussions of climate change today on human causes, natural climate change is real and a vital part of our planet's homeostasis. Forces like solar radiation, volcanic activity, and naturally occurring greenhouse gases all contribute to the process of natural climate change. Do you think natural climate change could account for our current global warming crisis in any way? No, natural climate change is far too slow and subtle to account for this. Scientists have found that since 1750, solar radiation has remained constant, so we can reliably attribute our climate crisis to anthropogenic causes, including greenhouse gas and fossil fuel emissions. Could you elaborate on the relationship between emissions and global climate change? Yeah, so think of the Earth's atmosphere as a greenhouse. Solar radiation enters the Earth's atmosphere and some of it is reflected back, but a majority is absorbed by the ground. As heat radiates back towards space, some of it is also trapped by greenhouse gases like methane and carbon dioxide. This trapped heat keeps the Earth warm, but increased emissions of these gases due to human activity means that the Earth is warming at an alarming rate. What human activity specifically would you attribute these elevated concentrations of greenhouse gases to? Without a doubt, the major contributors to the emissions are human industrial and agricultural practices. We're talking about fuel emissions from heat, electricity, and driving, but also from factory processes, deforestation, owning livestock. In particular, scientists in Denmark discovered that the methane that livestock produce can be reduced through selective targeting and breeding of both the animals and the microbes in their stomachs. Of course, we can also contribute to lowering methane emissions by reducing our intake of meat and by monitoring gas leaks and reducing oil consumption. Now, Justin, my next question goes to you. With that background and the causes of climate change, what do you consider as the major consequences of climate change? Unfortunately, the effects of climate change are devastating and far-reaching. The most pressing issue is perhaps that regarding global warming. According to NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, global average temperatures have risen roughly one degree Celsius since 1880, and over the next century, they will increase two and a half to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. From there, it all trickles down. Could you elaborate on that last point just a little bit more for us? While this steady increase in global temperatures is the driving force behind other major consequences of climate change like sea level rise, which in turn speeds ecosystem collapse. An IPC study uh, projects that 6% of insects, 8% of plants, and 4% of vertebrates are projected to lose over half of their climatically determined geographic range. Not to ramble on too much, but scientists have already observed such ecosystem disruption with bumblebees. A 2016 study of US bees found qualitatively, compared to a 1974 study, a decrease in bumblebee abundance, an upward shift in the elevation of bumblebees and their associated plants, as well as decreased seasonal synchrony between bumblebees and these plants. The big idea here is that the delicate balance of our natural systems is being disturbed. That's terrifying. What else can we expect from the fallout of climate change? Over the next century and even decades, we'll see a dramatic increase in the frequency of extreme weather events like hurricanes, droughts, and heat waves. To take hurricanes as an example, since 1980, the incidents of Cat 4 and Cat 5 hurricanes have increased, and they're projected to become stronger and more intense as the climate warms. That is scary stuff, all right. Looks like we're running low on time, so I want to get the big question we've been dancing around. Why should the public care about climate change? 
The public should care because it directly affects them. I know time is short, so I'll only focus on one effect, displacement. Extensive displacement is soon to come. We'll be chased from our coastal cities like animals freeing, fleeing from logging machines. Sea levels are currently rising at a rate of one foot per century. This rate is four times as fast as it was in 1900. Our coastal populations will soon be driven out. And my final question for the two of you is what can people do to get involved and help to reduce the climate impact? There are two fairly easy steps that the public can take that will have major effects. They can support new legislation like the Green New Deal, and they can boycott large corporations that have positive carbon footprints. All right, we're just about out of time, so I'd like to thank Justin and David for your valuable insights and valuable time. I think there's a great deal of hope for the world with regards to reversing the current trends of climate change. And it all starts with such simple measures from each and every one of us. But I'd also like to give a special thanks to our sponsor for today's episodes, the Long Guy Green Energy Technology Company, the world's leader in solar energy. Moreover, if you'd like to learn more, check out the links in our podcast description. Thank you all for tuning in and have a wonderful, wonderful week. Hello, and welcome back to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing climate change and what you can do to do your part to save the planet. We have with us today two experts in the field, Dr. DeMuro, a client scientist at Columbia University, and Dr. Westbrook, an environmental scientist who just got back from Australia, where she was doing work studying climate change and the Great Barrier Reef. As always, if you want more information on climate change and what it is, go give our previous episodes a listen. Hello, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm very excited to be here today. Yeah, hello to all our listeners, and thank you for tuning in. I'm very glad to be able to talk about my work here today. Thank you so much both for being here. Okay, so to start, we know what climate change is, but could you explain what the crisis is and why it's a crisis? Well, that's a loaded question. Essentially, the earth is continually being heated by greenhouse gases, which are being emitted from human activity as CO2, basically trapping the sun's heat and causing global temperatures to rise. This in turn leads to disastrous effects for the global ecosystems, including forest fires, major storms, heat waves, polar vortices, and sea levels rising, changing the pH for the animals who live there. Yes, which is what I was actually just studying on Australia. While this may not sound so dire, perhaps, the animals in their ecosystems are dying. While is, that's horrible, um, it also provides disastrous consequences for our food supply, not to mention us, as we may not be able to survive the extreme climates that are being created. Oh, wow. How long do we have before we start seeing the effects of this crisis? Well, we already are. Um, the natural disasters we've seen in the past year have only been continuations of the damage we have been anxiously awaiting since we realized the extent that we've harmed the planet. Yeah, I'd estimate around 11 years. That's the figure that I've found when working with my colleagues in the UN. But all hope isn't lost yet. There are things every individual can do to reverse and or even stop the damage. Okay, good. So there's hope. So you're saying that there are actions that people can take at home, and you're saying that those actions could potentially make a difference in lowering our carbon footprint? I sure am, but keep in mind that these are only short-term solutions. To actually ward off climate change totally, we need comprehensive and systematic changes to our supply chains. The main contributors to global warming aren't actually individuals, but rather big corporations that go unchecked. One of the most impactful things that needs to be done is getting the government to stop these corporations from prioritizing profit over the planet. 
maybe lobbying or calling your representatives or honestly, even just the purchasing power every person has by not supporting certain companies that emit the most can make a huge difference. Wow, okay. Is there anything else that individuals can do to lessen their carbon emissions? Yeah, of course. Um, actually, the one of the easiest ways to limit your carbon output is just to hang dry your clothing. It doesn't take much effort, but for going the dryer, dryer does save quite a lot of energy. And the great thing about saving energy is that you save money at the same time. Keeping to the laundry trend, people can also save energy by washing their clothes at a lower water temperature. For example, instead of high heat, choose a cold cycle. Of course, there are many other options to lower carbon emissions, such as eating less meat or walking or biking more than driving. These and more ways to lower emissions are in the list we have linked. I believe it will be linked, right? Yes, it'll be in the description for our listeners. Perfect. Yeah, I know these changes don't seem very catastrophic, but I would just like to give some facts for the skeptics out there. Uh, Thomas Dietz, my STEAM colleague and the rest of his team, estimated that about 123 million metric tons of carbon could be saved by year 10 if people just shifted their habits to be more environmentally friendly. Um, to give some context, that is 20% of household emissions and 7.4% of the U.S. To is total emissions. Wow, those are big differences. I hope all our listeners realize that they can have a huge impact by doing very little and decide to make the change. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. Thank you both so much for being here and sharing with us how to save the world. Our full list of climate-saving household actions provided by Dr. Tamuro and Dr. Westbrook will be attached. If you're itching to get a head start, make sure to check our description for petitions you can sign and donate to and organizations nationwide you can volunteer with, as well as ways to call your representatives to let your voice be heard. We've also linked a video from our car links at In A Nutshell with some more easy to follow information about the climate crisis. Have a great rest of your day to all of our listeners and remember to like and subscribe to our newsletter. I'm Jessica Barracuda. I'm Derek Yu. And I'm Gabriella Mayer, and you are listening to Save Our Planet. In today's podcast, we will explore the effects of climate change on a global scale, looking specifically at the Antarctic oceans and forests. To start, Gabriella, can you tell us a little bit about the impact of climate change on our forests? Yes, absolutely. Deforestation has an extremely damaging effect on our planet. High atmospheric temperatures, droughts, tropical storms, heat waves, and fires are increasing in, in severity and frequency because of climate change. All of these things contribute to forest loss, and therefore more and more carbon dioxide is being released into the atmosphere. So when forests are cleared or burnt, they release the carbon they store? What makes this increase the temperatures globally? Yes, exactly. One of the processes that ends up increasing global temperatures is called evapotranspiration. This is when forests absorb water from the soil through their roots and later release it into the air as moisture, which has a cooling effect on the atmosphere. When trees are cut down, this cooling effect disappears. With forests making up 30% of our planet, you can see why climate change is so damaging and how it has so many negative impacts. Yes, it does. I recently watched a documentary called Chasing Ice, where environmental photographer James Balog heads to Greenland, Iceland, and Alaska to capture images that help to convey the effects of global warming. Derek, can you tell us a little bit about how the rise in climate affects the melting Antarctic ice, which contributes to a rise in sea level? Wow, that movie really connects to the effects of climate change on the Antarctic. 
I was also reading, recently read a study which described a case where scientists were actually able to measure the rate of the melting of the Antarctic ice sheet. They looked at this by using the Earth system model to make a 3D ice sheet model. What did they find by doing this? The results were shocking. The authors identified that the rising temperatures in the ice can lead to significant differences in the ice sheet. The article shows many heat mass of Antarctica and with rising temperatures come melting ice caps and higher sea levels. This has severe consequences such as wetland flooding, agricultural contamination with salt, destruction of fish in its habitats, and etc. Wow, so devastating. It looks like climate change has countless effects on the planet. Jessica, I know you've been interested in coral reefs as you are currently living in Hawaii. What is the extent of climate change on the physiochemical environment that reefs occupy? Yes, Gabriella. Living in Hawaii and seeing the change in coral reefs has made me think about the effects of climate change on ecosystems. So first off, I wanted to find physical chemical. These are properties that pertain to both physical and chemical changes. For example, in the water of the coral reefs, some physical chemical properties are the pH levels, oxygen levels, or chlorophyll concentration. Increased greenhouse gases from human activities results in climate change. Climate change is ocean change. The world's ocean is like a massive sink that absorbs carbon dioxide. Although this has slowed global warming, it changes the ocean's physical chemical properties. What is the process for changing the physical chemical properties as the temperatures rise? As temperatures rise, mass coral bleaching events and infectious disease outbreaks are becoming more frequent. Additionally, carbon dioxide absorbed into the ocean from the atmosphere has already begun to reduce the rate at which reef building corals lay down their calcium carbonate skeleton in reef building. This alters seawater chemistry by decreasing the pH. This whole process is called ocean acidification. It is crazy that you are able to see these negative impacts so clearly, and it's obvious we need to start making some changes. Gabriella, I know you are passionate about being kinder to the earth. What are some things we can do to save our planet? There are a few easy ways you can fight climate change. If planting thousands of trees sounds too daunting, donate to organizations fighting to protect our forests. Secondly, listen to the experts. Save water. It takes a lot of energy to pump, heat, and treat your water, so take shorter showers and turn off the tap while brushing your teeth. Another way is by eating the food you buy, because currently around 40% of the food in America is wasted. Overall, when we consume less, we produce fewer emissions and are gentler on the earth. Thank you for the tips and for listening to our podcast today. Make sure to visit our website at saveourplanet.org to learn more about the dreadful impacts of climate change and what you can do to prevent it. Also, make sure to join our weekly Zoom meetings on Sundays at 8 p.m., where you can discuss the changes to make in our, in our own lives to fight climate change. Check us out on social media. Both our Instagram and Facebook group is Save Our Planet. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and tune in next week to learn more about climate change. Good afternoon and welcome to the Climate Museum of Seattle. My name is Professor Quinn and today I'm joined by my colleagues Dr. Rutherford and Babin on today's look into the 21st century's role in the ongoing climate crisis. Today is Saturday the 17th of April in the year 3022 and today's 1 p.m. is Climate a Killer Tour will commence shortly. Dr. Rutherford, why don't you start us off with a recap about what exactly is climate change? Climate change is a shift in usual weather tendencies. It is important to note this distinction. 
Climate change doesn't just refer to the earth getting warmer. It refers to the overall changes or unusual weather patterns across the globe. Throughout the tour, we will discuss how this impacts various ecosystems. Our team specifically conducted research on the Northern Spotted Owls and the Pacific Northwest, which have sadly gone extinct. We will lead you through the museum and discuss the multiple layers of the relationship between ecosystem and climate and why we need to continue to do better. I will now shift your attention to Dr. Babin, who will open with a discussion on the ways in which climate affects habitat. Climate change can affect habitats in many different ways. A lot of people used to think that it was just global warming, but there are many other side effects, including higher water temperatures, earlier snow melt, and less precipitation falling as snow, all of which can have major impacts on a habitat. An ecosystem is a group of living things, plants and animals, all living together and interacting with each other in an environment. Different ecosystems can respond in different ways to the various effects of climate change. For example, a study conducted by my colleagues Peterson, Kearns, and Dodson from the U.S. Department of Agriculture Pacific Northwest Research Station shows that while subalpine forests were clearly at great risk of loss of habitat, other areas such as shrub step biomes were not as vulnerable. Dr. Rutherford will bring us to our next exhibit, How Climate Change Affects Animal Species. Thanks, Doctor. Of course, climate also plays a large role in the success of various animal species. We as humans even feel the difference. When it's too hot, we stay inside with the AC. When it's too cold, we bundle up in blankets and sweaters. Unfortunately, our animals don't have this option. The published article, Population Trends in Northern Spotted Owls, Associations with Climate in the Pacific Northwest, by our colleagues Elizabeth Glenn, Robert Anthony, and Eric Forsman, reveals how interconnected slight shifts in climate have on a species' success. Nesting season, prey populations, and simply habitable temperatures greatly affects population. Even small shifts in climate can largely impact the success of a species, which really emphasizes the importance of preserving the environment. As noted by the authors, looking at the impact of climate change long-term on a species success is difficult and unclear. Each individual ecosystem is so complex and interconnected that no truly general model can be applied to all habitats. The patterns observed during 1990 to 2005, including increased occurrence of drought conditions during the summer, were noted to have the, the potential to affect annual survival, recruitment, which is the introduction of new members to a population, and population growth rates of northern spotted owls across a majority of their existing range. And these scientists were correct. These effects of climate were a main reason we lost this once beautiful species. The complexity of this one example should really emphasize why doing our part to battle climate change is so important. As much as scientists want to effectively model and create a strategy to preserve every species and ecosystem, it's just not possible. The best way to save more of these species is to maintain a high quality habitat. You can do your part by limiting the emission of greenhouse gases. Human activities have a shockingly large potential to cause continued damage. Next, Professor Quinn will discuss how these results manifest through the interconnectedness of ecosystems. Well, Dr. Rutherford, on display to our left is a 2008 scientific article entitled Global Change in Species Interactions in Terrestrial Ecosystems. The findings laid out in this study really set the foundation for the next decades of research into how factors such as carbon dioxide enrichment, nitrogen deposition, and biotic invasions negatively alter the strength of symbiotic relationships in predator-prey dynamics. Biotic invasions like the introduction of Japan's Pacific oyster onto the coasts of Washington state are aided by a reduced temperate season and longer periods of warmth from larger amounts of circulating greenhouse gases. These human-induced carbon dioxide and methane emissions 
in the 21st century acted as the main contributors to the eventual extinction of the species of Pacific Northwest owl. The effects of anthropogenic climate change are daunting to say the least, and when we combine this one instance of a now extinct species on a larger scale, to look at the interconnectedness of ecosystems on a global scale, the results are stupendous. Thanks so much for coming to our tour. Visit our website where new updates on research and informational articles are frequently uploaded. While we have discussed the staggering implications climate change has on our ecosphere, perhaps more alarming are the direct dangers climate change poses to human life. In an ongoing class action lawsuit, Juliana v. United States of America, the youth of America are charging the US government with violating their constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property through its inaction to address climate change. The lawsuit cites dozens of studies in the United States and across the world demonstrating how climate change has a direct, harmful impact on their physical and mental well being. A few of these studies and their proven and damages include, but are not limited to, urban runoff water increasing the burden of infectious diseases climate change's contribution to global food insecurity, and the health concerns posed by rising temperatures. Thank you, Charlotte. The first study published by Ryan H. Dwight et al. compared the rates of reported health symptoms among surfers in rural and urban areas of California. Their findings proved that surfers who frequented beaches with higher rates of pollution experienced twice the adverse symptoms experienced by surfers on the rural beaches with lower rates of pollution. These symptoms included fever, nausea, stomach pain, vomiting, diarrhea, sore throat, and skin infection, just to name a few. More importantly, the researchers reminded that these urban beaches are also more frequented by community members, including families with small children who are exposed to the same pollutants and are more susceptible to lasting damage. Public beaches should not pose such a substantial health concern to its patrons especially without a warning of the dangers to their well-being. Aaron makes a great point about the consequences of climate change at sea, but there are also health concerns on land. The United Nations projects that because of the growing global population, food production must double by 2050. But climate-related changes may threaten reliable food access across the world. Climate researchers project that climate change will lead to crop yields decreasing more and more in the decades to come. The hallmark symptoms of climate change include rising global temperatures, elevated levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and more frequent extreme weather events like hurricanes. Aside from the negative consequences of these changes themselves, these effects are expected to contribute to plant diseases becoming more widespread and more severe. According to Chakraborty et al., a type of plant disease, Fusarium head blight, can diminish the quantity and quality of future wheat harvests. Because wheat is our primary source of carbohydrates, this possibility alone makes the need to address climate change only more dire. Amaria mentioned the dangers of rising global temperatures, which was also the subject of a series of correlational studies conducted by Hanjula et al tracking the relative risk of heat-related morbidity on a global scale. They discovered two overall trends. Firstly, high ambient temperature exposure has negative health effects when examined in a vacuum. Such risks include cardiovascular and respiratory diseases, increased transmission of infections, and accidents resulting in hospitalization. 
The CDC's extreme heat adaptation tool shows the threat of heat-related illness in major U.S. cities, as well as the response plans put in place by local governments. However, the data also highlights humans' surprising adaptability to this change, which has combated such detrimental health effects to an extent. In Seoul, South Korea, it was found that cardiovascular mortality in late summer has decreased by a statistically significant factor in the past three decades, despite each one degree increase in temperature. Such human resistance could be attributed to biological factors of adaptability, technological advancement, and government and community action. It is important to note not only how climate change and rising temperatures can affect health, but how human efforts can diminish these risks, particularly for disadvantaged communities in developing nations and in growing urban areas. Clearly, climate change presents a formidable challenge, but we as humans are not powerless to mitigate, it, mitigate its effects. Policymakers can draft and implement solutions to combat the dangers posed by climate change, and private citizens can urge their leaders to take action, and not just through class action lawsuits. Visit the link on our podcast website to learn more about the ongoing battle to reduce greenhouse emissions and their dangerous implications, and how you can promote change. Our Earth is dying. According to The Guardian, the top 20 firms getting rich off of underdeveloped countries put out a third of all carbon emissions, discouraging companies to stray from addressing climate change to protect their income. This needs to change. Often, people are opposed to fighting climate change, citing the adverse economic effects as mentioned before. However, they fail to recognize the bigger issue at hand. We need to take steps to address these issues and use our international economic system to confront our changing climate. Many geologists believe that we are living in a new geological era, the Anthropocene, or the era when humans have the greatest control over the environment. It is broadly agreed that this era began in the 1800s with the dawn of the Industrial Revolution and new imperialism. Today we are living in the most advanced stage of its development, with expansive global markets and the highest global carbon dioxide emissions in human history. While it is often argued as a natural system, global capitalism has led to gross inequalities between countries as well as environmental destruction. Recent studies demonstrate that not only in monetary exchange, but also in net appropriations of labor, land, energy, and raw materials, the richest countries in the world are benefiting from market power imbalances that allow them to shift the burden of environmentally damaging and resource-intensive production onto poorer regions, while post-industrial consumer societies such as the U.S. refuse to curb capital accumulation and associated resource overconsumption. Mismanagement of ecosystems and other impacts of stratification within and between societies up until this point should lead us to reason that we cannot reach the goal of counteracting climate change without democratic planning and a steady overcoming of markets. One of the major roadblocks in the shift to renewable energy is the said economic impact. Many fear the costs aren't worth the benefits. However, the Brookings Institute recently reported on a drastically declining cost of clean energy. In a study from the National University of Malaysia in 2018, economists built a model that utilizes this trend. For decades, the Malaysian government has subsidized energy costs, more or less handing out checks to utilities to ensure cheap electricity. The researchers pose a question. What if we take this money, currently going to gas and coal, and invest it in clean and renewable energy? By shifting government money from gas to renewable resources, they found only minuscule economic effects were noticed. However, CO2 emissions plunged.
To address the possible economic positives of switching to green energy, I'm going to explore the question of how will this affect labor since the state of the job market can easily change so many lives. In a case study in the United Kingdom, researchers looked into long-term effects on labor if they hypothetically switched to renewable energy by exploring a theoretical model and found that the switch to greener methods could create an average of 3.5 times the amount of jobs in the long run than before, which is a huge incentive for the average person to advocate for a change in energy methods. One thing to keep in mind is that this case study was designed in a developed country, so its data is not universal, but it does mean that the world can transition into renewable energy faster in places that can afford it. Third world countries, on the other hand, are affected in a very different way. That's why although it's nice to see what switching to renewable energy does for the economy, another important thing to look at is where our money goes, so we can help areas who will be affected either way. Because of the way third world countries are exploited, there will be a shortage in many natural resources. Water is a prime example. The UN estimates that by 2030, up to 700 million people will be displaced due to water scarcity. A great example is shown with a case study in Iran. No matter what we do at this point, the environment will be affected badly. I'm talking droughts, food shortages, and people losing their land. But they looked at the best and worst case scenarios in terms of negative effects climate change will bring to the region and found that by moving money, people could acclimate to the changes, but only if governments were willing to allocate money to help. In this scenario, that would mean building dams and more water infrastructures. But this is only, like the title of the episode says, buying some time and provides a short-term solution for a way bigger problem. And to find a sustainable way to survive in the long run, so much more has to change. It has been said that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. The ecological crisis we are facing today makes this ever more true. However, many policies can be adopted within the market framework that will push us in the right direction. France undertook one of the most successful and rapid decarbonization programs in history through the expansion of public sector nuclear energy, which now produces 40% of France's electricity and allows for annual 4% reductions in emissions. Where market incentives fail, the public sector can fill in the gaps for the time being. Regulation has proved effective in repairing the ozone layer, but some policies, such as flat taxes on fossil fuel consumption, can produce inequalities for working people who spend a larger proportion of their income on fuel. Beyond markets, the planning apparatuses within corporations such as Walmart, which is itself a planned economy larger than many of the economies of Europe, could be repurposed to put an egalitarian, democratic, and ecologically responsible society. If you want to get involved, join the Sunrise Movement. And if you want to learn more, check out the People's Republic of Walmart, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, and the birth of the Anthropocene. Thanks for tuning in. Need to replace at least two thirds of the global energy demand. 
so that by 2050, global surface temperatures remain below 2 degrees Celsius. This information is based on mathematical models for energy and economics from 150 different countries. ME econometric model predicts that the transition will boost global trillion dollars and create net 19 million jobs according to a video from ASAP science as of 2017 renewable energy is cheaper and more efficient the cost of a solar panel cell in 1977 was 76 dollars now it only costs 50 cents in order to set up an efficient 100 percent renewable energy system you need to look at the integration of several clean technologies at the same time, such as grid, wind, and solar energy as a unit working together instead of individual technologies in isolation. There was a very interesting case study from an article called Alternative Energy Scenarios for Boscada Island, Turkey, where scientists simulated a hybrid system with combinations of different renewable energy technologies to determine the net benefits and costs. They determined that a hybrid grid and wind system or a combination of wind and solar energy is the most reliable and financially viable. Implementing these hybrid systems is a great solution to the problem. Unfortunately, we cannot jump immediately to 100% fully renewable energy. This may sound discouraging, but this does not include new technological advances or alternative fuels such as biofuels. Forrest, I believe you know quite a bit about biodiesel. According to Ted Ed, biodiesel is a biodegradable energy space source made from plant oils and animal fats. I also remember that an article published in 2019 explored whether or not biodiesel, or more specifically, rainseed biodiesel, could viably replace standard diesel fuel in the future. In the study, the researchers compared biodiesel to conventional fuels in consumption and carbon emissions. They found varying results in the effectiveness of using rapeseed biodiesel compared to using standard diesel in the engine, but concluded that the best fuel option was a biodiesel blend that reduced greenhouse gas emissions. These investigations are important because they show that transitioning to renewable energy is viable and possible in the years to come. We've reached the end of our ASMR pod science podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you're interested in supporting our show, please visit our sponsor, audible.com. They have a wide range of audiobooks to choose from. And if you enter our promo code ASMR, you'll get your first book free. We recommend listening to The Third Industrial Revolution by Jeremy Rifkin for more info about alternative fuel. Check out our Patreon and subscribe to our YouTube, also sponsored by HelloFresh.